Hello and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. And I'm Connor. And for this episode, we're going to be talking about papers that look at the field of scientific research and practices in scientific research and what's happening in them and trends that are happening in science, basically. It's giving us uh, insight into the state of science kind of as an institution right now. And kind of even sometimes using scientific approaches or like quantitative approaches to analyze the field. Yes. So the science of science or meta-science. Uh, and for this, we've read a few different papers. The first one that we'll talk about is called Together We Stand, and the last author on that is Semin Deferi. And this is basically like a little review perspective article that was in the journal Nature Physics that talks about the fact that uh, scientific projects are becoming larger in terms of the number of people that are participating in them, and so kind of the number of people that are listed as authors on a paper is increasing, and what does that mean for the way we do science, and you know how do we need to change some of the standards and some of the culture in science to adapt to this increasing size of a scientific team. And then the next one will be The Natural Selection of Bad Science by... Smaldino and Myth Elwreath from 2016. And this is a, a paper that's kind of a, an actual proper modeling paper. They build a computational model that's meant to reflect how the scientific community works, how kind of publishing happens, and how scientific practices spread or die out. And they use this to show that the current incentives that are kind of put onto all scientists makes it likely that the science that gets published won't be of particularly high quality. And they talk about the mechanisms of that and some ways to possibly counter it. Uh, and then we're going to talk about um, a, a short kind of experiment that was done at a conference. So there's um, a conference called NIPS, the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference. And normally uh, conferences get you know submissions from a bunch of people and they have to pick who gets in and they do this through a process of peer review. This conference decided to do a little experiment to see how robust their peer review is. Uh, and so we'll talk about the results of that and what that says about peer review generally and what that could say about uh, kind of the, the metrics by which people are judged in science if peer review isn't reliable, what does that mean? And then the last paper is um, a little bit different. It's neuroscience-specific, and it's the changing landscape of neuroscience research uh, that was published in Frontiers of Neuroscience in 2017. So it's a recent paper, and it goes over trends of topics that have occurred in neuroscience papers over um, a 10-year period to show how those have changed. Uh, and that paper was recommended to us by a listener, so thank you to Satpreet Singh for recommending that. And if you would like to recommend a paper or a topic, you can do as he did and tweet at us at UST Podcast, or you can visit our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. Uh, okay, so yeah, so those will be the topics for this kind of meta science episode. So when we were thinking about what we wanted to talk about, uh, related to this topic of meta-science or whatever, we were kind of also discussing even like what we meant by meta-science and if, so if, if all of these papers fell into it. And I guess sort of there are sort of many different kinds of things that you might think of as meta-science, like how people do collaborate sort of sociologically, um, sociologically examined, 
or in in this case, I guess we're sort of focusing on. We're focusing on the mechanisms of science, kind of at a meta level, and how they lead to trends or outcomes. Yeah, no, but I'm、science. trying to be more specifically. I mean, meta science. I feel like there's like a lot of things that you could study. Yeah, in, I mean, there's a whole history of studying science from the outside, right? Which encompasses like huge swaths of different fields, like philosophy, sociology, anthropology, history. Um, and so on. So yeah, I think it's enormous. And so, like, there is there's like something kind of of late where scientists have been using scientific approaches. Like, for example, there's other stuff that we might talk about some future date of like using social network analysis to like, look at like citation, who yeah, cites yeah. who, and who works with who, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot of different things to look at when you're looking at science.、Um, so this is clearly yeah a subset of the things that you could look at when you look at science. And I guess maybe some of the things that we're looking at today have more to do with sort of credit assignment、yeah. and a little bit about collaboration, but not really from the standpoint of social networks. More just about different roles and how people's careers might advance due to. Oh yeah, there's kind of a general sense of a certain unease that a lot of people have. I think people who work within science about a number of different things and. These select the selection papers kind of is getting at some different kinds of problems that people recognize in kind of in su- certain structural things about how science works that seem to be potentially leading people down kind of bad directions. So, so if we start thinking a bit more concretely about the sort of first paper about team science, I feel like I I, I don't know as an undergrad I took a, a couple courses on sociology of science and history of science and. There was, it was something that people in that field seemed to believe to some extent. I mean, I don't want to like you know overgeneralize here, but there did seem to be some message there that science in the twentieth century got bigger, and that like the teams got bigger and the funding for it got bigger.、Um, I, I think that that's like it's clear that there have been instances of that, but the Manhattan ha- Project is usually cited. Yeah, Manhattan, the the work human- on the atomic bomb, like as a coordinated effort by a bunch of scientists. Yeah,、so. and like things like NASA. Yeah. You know, which was not mentioned、Cern. in this one. Yeah,、Cern. any particle, anything that requires you know some billion dollars or whatever is going to include a lot of people.、Presumably. And then they talk about the Human Genome Project as a biological example.、Um, but and I, I feel like there are initiatives like this, and there are, are a couple ongoing right now. And so I'm not I'm not trying to like to say that that's not true, but it it does seem like I, I mean I don't know the exact numbers, but it does seem like many potentially the overwhelming majority of scientists are not. Part yeah, of I thought that、groups. in this paper they were. There was certainly some kind of conflation, or, or sort of an alighting and a kind of an elision going on, where it's like, I mean, in their first figure, they they have this plot that shows the、um, average number of co-authors on papers over time. In they break it down into economics and then into th- nature, PNS, yeah, science, yeah.、Um, and yeah, it's increasing. But like, so、uh, they talk about they're talking in the text mostly about these really large scale projects, and. To me, it seems like that figure is not necessarily at all re- related. Phenomenon in that figure is not necessarily at all related to the large team projects, right? I agree that they're not related, but I think the figure still makes the point that even regular sized projects. I think those are, are potentially two quite separate points, though, right? You know, yeah, one yeah, phenomenon yeah. is like are people working in teams of two or three as opposed to now like five or six, versus like is science systematically tending towards like, super large scale collaborative. Those are at least potentially totally different phenomena. I don't know, and it was my、yeah. experience, my personal experience, is not 
I don't feel that I've been affected by this trend. I don't feel like most people in, you know, like our field, subfield. I don't think that we've been in the field long enough to be affected. We're in a certain time point on that. Okay. Yeah, I guess. Graph. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but maybe like we should lay some background for this kind of whole conversation, which is, you know, like papers are the currency of science. They're the units in which science is measured. And that's going to be important for understanding a lot of the stuff we're talking about. So when we're talking about co-authors, it's just how many people are listed as an author on a paper. And if you're not listed as an author on the paper, then, you know, you don't get any credit for that project. You have to kind of be officially listed as an author. And the ordering matters in certain fields in, in things like neuroscience. If you're the first author, it means that you kind of were the main person behind the project. The last author is usually the uh, person whose lab the work was done in. And this is how people get judged, both by the number of papers they have and where those papers show up. So which journal? There's and different and the sort of subsequent impact of the paper. Citations, yeah. yeah. There's way, there's, there are clear quantitative measures that are meant to reflect kind of the quality and productivity of the researcher. But obviously that is problematic. And that's kind of because you can't fully encapsulate someone's research quality with a few numbers. I, so one thing that I, I, I thought was cool in this paper was the analogy to, for example, like the movie industry. I think it's imperfect, but I think it does get at something in, interesting, which is that there's... Why don't you explain what the analogy is? Though? Yeah, so there, there's sort of, in, in like labs in universities, there's sort of the system in places that is like the professor whose lab it is, and they're referred to in the context of like grants as the principal investigator. But that's usually like a primary professor. And then they have like people who work under them who are either grad students or postdocs. And in some cases, a small number of other things, like I'm going to be a permanent research scientist in the lab, though that's relatively uncommon. And it's sort of like flat structure organizationally in most cases because the labs are relatively small, aside from the professor. And so like in some sense, there's this principal investigator, the professor, and then there's like everyone that works under them. And... That can be like a fairly, it can end up being like a fairly flat thing where everyone is sort of doing all parts of it. But the, the papers, though people have tried to change this, don't often like really differentiate like the roles. So, for example, you might have like an expert at collecting some sort of data and you might have an expert at analyzing a certain sort of data um, on, on the same paper. And at the end, it just becomes this sort of like order of like this was who was most important you know, first or something like this. Yeah, it, gets it doesn't really collapsed. differentiate things very well. There have been efforts to label kind of author contributions, it's called. There might be a section in the paper that briefly says this person did the experiments, this person did the data analysis, this person wrote the paper, that kind of thing. And I guess like sort of the analogy to the movie industry would be like, you know, in a movie, it's not even like the video editor is competing with the screenplay writer in some sense. It's not like you would say who's more important you would just view them as like obviously both relevant contributors to the project. And judged by different metrics yeah, because they do different things. Whereas in science, all of these people on the paper may be trying to apply for a faculty position at one point and they will be kind of put up next to each other in a somewhat direct comparison kind of way. There isn't a lot of nuance in a certain way. There's not a lot of nuance about how people are evaluated in science or at least that's the impression that people sometimes have i mean i think like at least anecdotally i've, I've heard of i mean it's, it's clear that like when a university position is available people are 
sometimes specifically sought after who have certain sets of skills or things like this. Sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, it, like, there's a sense in which, yeah, everyone, and, and this is kind of how the paper frames it, is, like, everyone is sort of looking to become the principal investigator, which doesn't really set up necessarily the most productive dynamic or environment for collaboration. Like, if, if you just... If you, if you want to be an expert at collecting data, that like isn't a permanent position in some sense. Um, and in, in, in modulo a few exceptions that are you know created for, for for such people. Most of the time, that's not like a permanent position, and you have to like be sort of on a path to become a principal investigator. Yeah. Regardless of what your sub skill set is within science. It's like in business when people are good at something, they get promoted to be a manager of other people who are doing those things. It doesn't really make sense necessarily. You might just want to have someone who's good at something and have them do that for a long time. But I think this article does like kind of make the point things are getting bigger. I believe that. The, the average number of co-authors on a paper, it says in 2010 was about 10 authors in these kind of um, high-ranking journals. And they project that by 2040, there will be 18 authors per paper. And then the number of postdocs, the number of like researchers a uh, primary investigator will have underneath them has been increasing as well. Around the early 90s, it shot up from an average about one postdoc per professor to two. And then it's been around there ever since. So it seems like things are getting bigger. And then taking that assumption, they want to talk about what are the... Um, the ramifications of that and what do we have to change about how we evaluate people in order to account for that because if people are working on a big team you know that might be good for science that you have a big team of people working together um i mean we can get into whether we think that's that's better or not um, but then how do you assign credit and how do you assign blame if something went wrong in the project we don't want it to be necessarily that the the pi has all the responsibility for a team of 20 people doing work. I mean, I guess what I liked about this, though, was the sort of they, they're offering something constructive, which is to say, like, when a project starts, when a grant is available for a project, they require that people with distinct roles be sort of participate in this, right? Where, like, you would have, I mean, I think the like a sort of easy and obvious uh, distinction would be, like, people gathering data versus people who are, like, you know, have a have a quantitative background and can do the data analysis of that data. I mean, there could be there could be many more subdivisions depending on the domain and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's that's kind of a cool proposal, um, where that's like made explicit, and then sort of institutions actually would have people with these various skill sets in permanent positions, so that they can, you know, like otherwise such people wouldn't be available to like so, you know solicit these grants necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. So they also advocate for kind of changes in how people are trained to make them more prepared for this kind of environment. So people, when they're going through the PhD process, their training should be explicitly in the context of working in groups so that they can understand some of the complications that may come from that kind of interpersonal dynamics and uh, delegation of work. And they also think that the increase in team size might be detrimental to the relationship between a PI and their mentee. You know, the, the idea is that in the old days, you'd have a professor you'd work with and you'd get a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with them and you could learn from them very personally and directly. But if an individual professor has 40 people working underneath them, that's very unlikely. And that's stuff that like we see, you know, we know labs that are really big and it's, you know, 
it's not always easy to get time with the head of the lab to talk about your project. Uh, so they think that that's something that needs to be focused on if the, the lab sizes are going to get bigger. And they also advocate for more humanities training in the PhD program for scientists, which I thought the call was a little vague. It was just more humanities, but they don't mean uh, explicit research conduct and ethics classes because they talk about those as a Band-Aid solution that's happening. They want, I think, like kind of the deeper, you know, you would take some kind of philosophy class or something like that, but I'm not exactly sure how the mechanism by which that uh, helps the group dynamic. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not 100% sure about that either. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of, there's a very first order thing here, which is just that, like, there aren't enough, you can't become a professor. Like, most people can't become professors. There's some forces that, that you know, encourages the system to be such that you have way more PhD students and postdocs than can ever plausibly become professors. And if you enter into, like, elitish type universities, this is just one sub-problem, right? then you're kind of encouraged to talk very much about yourself as someone who totally desires to become an academic and so on. Um, I think, like, solutions that don't address this kind of very first-order structure where, like, there, w there currently is no real... You can't stay in academia. Yeah, they don't say here, like, we just need to admit fewer people into the PhD program because that'll help. Although they do say we should kick the older PIs out. <laughs> so that's something. Yeah. Um, and the idea of kind of of increasing the middle of having these kind of positions that yeah. aren't quite professors, but or are like, more than PhD student or postdoc. I mean, I don't know where the money is supposed to come from, but it's well, I mean, they say the ultimate goal is to swell the middle ranks in academia, promoting yeah. a more equitable distribution of federal funding, yeah. which, yeah. Yeah. Sure. I think there just needs, also needs to be like a huge increase in federal funding for science, probably. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess the whole U.S. population yeah. grows, and so you would expect there to be like grow. I mean, like assuming science isn't growing as a share of what the U.S. spends its money on, or something like that, then yeah. you would you would expect the, the the amount of funding going to scientists to increase a little bit. Yeah. But it seems like the number of people who study science and want to participate in science. Uh, is increasing faster than like the growth rate of the population, uh, and faster might. than the money, and fa and the core correspondingly somewhat faster than the money. I mean, I don't. I mean, th maybe this is something to look into in a more detailed way. I don't. I don't have they a sense of all of this. They say that this leads to an unhealthy swelling and aging of the postdoc population, yeah. which was just. Why is that unhealthy? It's. I, I find this all. I don't know. This, I find this all couched in a certain kind of like an unwillingness to to be more like brutal about what they're saying I mean, it's like most phd programs are producing i mean actually it's not 100 percent clear to me what they're for in some sense like to be to be an annoyingly functionalist person about it as if there's some like reason why we have the, you know we produce certain kind of phd students but like the reality is that like phd students people people get phds and they go into industry mostly um so if we're not like already thinking about most phd people as people who are being produced for industry, then we're not even, like, that to me is like, we're not talking about the kind of reality. And I, I felt like this paper had a little bit of that tendency to, like an, an attempt almost to look at science as this isolated thing where like PhD students and postdocs are really like a part of it, which they're not. Like some fraction of them will end up becoming a kind of permanent part of it. But most of the people who are in science doing scientific work aren't in some sense 
a part of this closed system that is science. Most of them are transiently doing scientific work for people who are permanently in quote-unquote science, and they will then go on to do maybe science in a corporate context, but that's usually thought of as a sort of a slightly separate thing, which probably it shouldn't be if you want to have a more holistic view of what science is. They're not directly addressing that, but I think the idea of making more middle-tier positions is to allow people to stay in academic science who would otherwise get pushed out because they're not becoming professors. That's implicit in it, I feel like. I mean, maybe, yeah. That's implicit, yeah. But I think it's quite quite radical in a way, like that idea, actually, if you, if you kind of follow it through to its logical end. Like, I think if you want to really make a dent in the way this works, you would quite, it would require... I mean, these authors are kind of hinting at that this, that this is their feeling, I think. But it would require like relatively major restructurings of the kinds of jobs that exist in institutions, yeah. what those institutions fundamentally yeah. look like, and probably how grant money is distributed. It would have to change massively, right? I mean, just I just want to like spell out how kind of these are not like he talks about band-aid solutions, but then about like, you know, ethics courses and stuff. I also kind of think some of his these solutions that he suggested were kind of also band-aid. I mean, I think like humanities curriculum is a band-aid solution. I, I get the idea, like as if like we need to understand more about the kind of broad position of science in the world or something, or the history of it. Like I'm, I'm totally in favor of all of that, but that also feels band-aid because it's not like the structural changes don't flow from that. Or I mean, maybe, maybe yeah. I guess. Well, so they talk about like people who are raised in this large team environment that aren't getting proper uh, training and yeah. attention. Well. The, the exact phrase was academic orphans develop behavioral problems. So the idea is if we're going to have these large teams, we need to make sure yeah. that we're focusing on training these people to behave appropriately uh, if they're not getting one-on-one attention from their advisor like they would have in the past. I mean, right? I, I like the behavioral problems. Anal- it like, sounds like a person talking about elementary school children or something. I loved how this was written. There are a lot of fun phrases. I thought that was fucking insane, to be honest. I think that is like classic, like Orwellian neoliberal bullshit. Like it's it's just it's the standard move want, of like wait, so there's no it. there's no jobs, so like you're stressed out and depressed, and then we say oh they have behavioral problems, yeah, so they yeah. have to make sure that they know how to work in large teams. It's like, like give me a break. It's the most condescending thing I've ever heard. It's just unreal. Like I don't know. I want to tally of how many times neoliberalism has been brought up on this neuroscience podcast. <laughs> It's all around us. Mm. <laughs> um, well, then, then maybe this is a good way to transition into the natural selection of bad science. So that was the next paper that we read. And as I said, this is one that uh, both looks at empirical work or empirical findings about um, kind of the, the way that I think that there's a lot of focus on psychology research and the statistics done there, um, how that's not really evolved over the years, and then how we can explain the practices of scientists with this dynamical systems model that uh, that sets up many labs and has them compete with each other over time, and you see who kind of evolves to, to survive in that environment. So, I mean, just like there's a, there's a sort of large field of people in various disciplines who use let's say, evolutionary algorithms to try to, like, assess certain properties uh, of society. There would be kind of, there are people who use evolutionary algorithms to try to, like, optimize problems. 
That's like not at all what this is related to. This is more like you have like a model of a society and you want to look at what the distribution of a certain trait in that society would be. Um, and so you simulate rounds of evolution to see like how widespread certain traits are in a population that results from some evolution. So it's like artificial evolution. You have rounds of, of generations being produced. And then you say some people, some, you know, uh, some individuals of that population will die under certain circumstances and other ones will reproduce under certain circumstances, usually with some sort of tie-in where like the people who are more fit by some metric, the individuals in that society that are more fit by some metric will reproduce more prolifically. Mm -hmm. And so then each round you see like the frequency of this trait, like out of 500 individuals in my simulated society or out of a thousand individuals in my simulated society, at this round, some number have this trait, some number have this other trait. And you can do this for kind of anything. And really all you need to do is specify like the rules of your game. The, the individuals in this uh, system are kind of like individual labs, you can think of it as. And they are defined by three variables, which is the power, the effort, and the replication rate. And so the power is kind of thought of as kind of like a threshold of what they accept as a finding. So you can imagine um, if you do an experiment and there's a finding uh if you have like a really low threshold uh you'll say that you found a lot of things but some of those things will be true positives like they they actually correspond to something that's true and some will be false positives so you think you found something but it's not real um you can think of it as like um, a motion detector you can set it to detect motion that's very small and you'll catch like burglars anytime they come in but it'll also go off like you have like an alarm. It'll go off when a fly goes by, and so you like you want to titrate it so that you have like it goes off when you want it to, but it doesn't go off when you don't want it to. And so that's kind of the power. The effort is saying you know if you have a certain amount of power, that'll affect how many true positives and false positives you have. But if you put in effort, you can keep the true positive rate high and decrease the false positive rate. So that's like a better situation for actually finding truth. But if you put in effort, that takes time, and it means you can't do as many studies as a lab. And then the replication rate is the frequency with which you try to retest a hypothesis that was already tested by another lab versus with uh, the frequency with which you go after a new hypothesis that hasn't been tested. And so those are the traits that define the individuals. And then you can kind of put them in an environment. You can say things like if a lab publishes a novel hypothesis that turned like they that they found to be true in their lab and they publish it they get so many prestige points if they publish a replication study they get fewer prestige points you can have it that if a lab tries to replicate another lab's paper and that replication fails then the lab that did it first has a decrease in their prestige because it means that they published something that another lab found not to be true so you can have these dynamics and you can set up different parameters and you can see what kind of behaviors evolve in terms of what traits are the ones that win out over some time scale. So you have these many generations of labs competing and they all have these traits which amount to like, I mean, taken together, like assuming some sort of finite resources in a given lab, it's like how sloppy are they basically? I mean, that, that's like the, the sort of summary. How sloppy are they and how much do they go after new things versus replication? Sure. And then... There's sort of the the dynamics based on, uh, sorry the, the rules by which they're scored which result in this are uh, 
are basically like how much prestige they have. Yeah. So and at each time point, um, some of the labs that have been around for a while will die out due to like old age. That's one of the mechanisms. And new labs will spawn in their place, but the new labs that spawn will come from the labs that have higher prestige and they'll inherit in kind of like a, a messy way. There's a little bit of variation in the inheritance, but they'll inherit it, inherit the, the properties of the original lab. So whatever level of effort the original lab was using, the new lab will use something similar. So that's how kind of prestige influences the next generation or influences other labs in this system. It's funny because, like, I do computational modeling, so I know how it is. Like, it's just code and stuff. But when I was reading this, I kept thinking of, like, The Sims are like little like characters walking around in lab coats, like doing experiments and then publishing and then their lab dies off or something like that. It's like I wanted to play this game. (laughs) But that would be a needless level of detail. For, for the simulations to be run it. Instead, it's just like a list of three traits. So you've got like some small computable object that's like a data structure that's got like three variables associated with it. I like my way. I'm going to make a, uh, an app that is this game and it'll be the next big seller. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be a scientist? <laughs> okay, so the results of this. Um, so at first they, they show the results when there are no replications done. None of the labs perform replication studies. So people are only testing new things. And they basically show that it, it pretty quickly goes to the state where all the labs that are uh, left after some amount of time are using no effort and they have a high threshold. So basically they're just trying to find anything that looks like a result and they're publishing it and so that's not a good state for science that people are that that is, that is the actual <laughs> state of science also just some people are just people know <laughs> that, that is the implication uh i'm joking so, but it is the implication yeah. that they, they talk about uh in this paper and, and other things that we've looked at like the frequency that replication even even is attempted um and for for some fields the, the even like that the the frequency at which replications are attempted is sufficiently low, as for us to like approximate it as a field where replications just don't occur. Well, yeah. So the next round of simulations that they do has replication um, at one percent, which they say is in line with psychology. About one percent of papers published in psychology are replications of previous studies, and with that in the model, it does dampen the. Uh, the, the impacts. There is more effort that's being applied to control for false positives, and the, the threshold that people are using is lower uh, in, in the simulation, but not by very much. It's still ultimately a kind of unpleasant situation. And the, the, I think the main idea was there that was that um, so the, the people start out with 1% replication rate and then it's allowed to evolve, but there's not a lot of incentive for publishing a replication study because. The way they have it set up, if you publish a replication study, you get half the prestige points as if you publish a novel study. Which is actually fairly generous. Yeah. I I mean, I think in the the real world, it's not not even clear you really can publish replication studies. I mean, there's uh, there's pushes now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's hard Um, to, I mean, that's not like super common. Yeah, they they say they make the model like as favorable as is reasonable. So you can publish a replication study in this model, whether it turns out positive or negative for the original study. and as I said, it gets about half the, the prestige as if you publish a positive novel result. And so it just seems like there's still an incentive to just 
have low effort, work quickly, publish a bunch of probably false positives, um, and then get your prestige that way, then you'll succeed and you'll have progeny. Uh, so the having uh, replication as an option isn't very helpful. And they even um, make the parameters such that if you if a study you put out is replicated and shown to be false, then you get like a hundred times decrease in your prestige compared to the reward you got when you published the original study. And even that isn't enough to, to make it worthwhile. And the reasoning was because the probability that someone will attempt to replicate your study yeah. and show it to be false, even if it is, is just quite low in the first place, because the replication probability of yeah. someone trying to replicate your specific study is because quite low. yeah, even if you would need like systematic replication in the but end, they even they show that <laughs> yeah they show that with up to fifty percent replication and it's the more if you hold replication constant and they change it the higher the replication rate like say fifty percent of papers are just replicated by default it. Uh, slows down this evolution to the bad state, but it doesn't stop it because there will always be labs that either by chance are publishing a lot of papers that don't have that many false positives or the ones that have false positives slip through the cracks if you're only at 50% replication. And so those labs become super powerful and very influential. And so just kind of the tails of the distribution can change the whole culture, basically even when if you have 50% replication, which is like not feasible, like it's not going to happen. Hmm. One thing that I liked about this paper in particular, I mean, I think there are, there are sort of obviously things that are potentially, uh, you know, slightly questionable about the methods, but the spirit of it, I think, is, is somewhat reasonable. And, and in terms of the presentation, in terms of the, like, the way they were framing it, they're not really assigning like malice or deceptiveness on the part of the people who are, doing this like the assumption is just like you have some internalized scientific norms of honest conduct in their language and you uh you 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 using those those sort of norms about what is good conduct you'll you'll behave and you'll 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 do what you do based on what you've learned and basically you might have just been taught that like the right way to do science is a way that results in too many false positives like that's just the it's obviously like if you're a PhD student and your advisor tells you like, go find 15 people to be in our fMRI study and then you can write a paper, you'll be like, okay, that's what my advisor told me. And you're not, you know, there's no reason that you would be like, is 15 enough? Like, what am I actually trying to test? And is that going to give me enough statistical power and that kind of thing? It's, you're going to assume that the way that other people got their work published is an acceptable way to do science. And in some case, like, in a way, it is, because if we just say science is like what people get published, then you're right. You can get things published that way. But what will that actually do in terms of like finding the truth? Uh, there's, you're, you're just, it's, it's reasonable to trust like the thousands of other people that are doing things the way that you've been told to do it. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting to me, this um, idea that this emphasis on, and this is very common in in this field where people use these agent-based models um, in kind of sociology in general, they, there's, a, there's a tendency to talk about one of the advantages. You don't have to make big, major assumptions about individuals, like really simplifying assumptions about what, how indiv- individuals behave and stuff. But then there's also this thing that happens where, I, I think, I mean, this, I'm just, this is like total speculation. It's like an impression that I have um, from reading this stuff. To show how bad, quote unquote, 
bad by whatever metric it is that you have in mind, right? Um, outcomes result from not bad individuals. You know, it's, it's like a very common theme. You know, it's kind of like, oh, but look, just in fact, racism just emerges from whatever. And one way I really like that because it's like it emphasizes structural causes, right? The boundary conditions or like emergent properties of simple rules can have these unexpected and unintended consequences and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it's also inter- it's also like obviously very unrealistic in the sense that people aren't like it, 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 in a funny way in its emphasis, in its kind of ability to emphasize these structural or emergent um, properties of social systems, it also has this tendency to like really undermine the agency of people. It kind of puts forth, I mean, of course, these people don't think people are actually like that, but in some way, it gives you this idea of people as kind of stupid, which I think is really like not true. I mean, like people are very actively engaging in these systems. They know all of this stuff. We all know all of this stuff. Everybody's trying to figure this stuff out all the time. What are the games that you have to play? I mean, maybe some people are more or less conscious about it or more or less vocal about it and so forth. I mean, it's clear but that these these are meant to be an abstraction. No, of course, of course. Simple, yeah, simplify well, things. I mean, so... You can abstract in different directions, right? Then there's choice. You, you could have an abstraction that goes towards, like, simply malicious people, for example. Well, how would you, how would you abstract this kind of process and have it not like appear to reduce the agency of the individuals yeah, right no, i mean maybe maybe it's impossible i just think it's it's interesting the choices of i don't know if like it's not a very major point just it's just curious to me that like i think there's a tendency to want to find ways of explaining bad social outcomes entirely without putting any blame on individuals which i'm kind of in favor of in okay. some sense like you know it's, it's actually i think it's actually a kind of a there's certain things about that that are like socially quite beneficial right in that you're attempting not to do this in a way conservative thing of being like oh you know people are poor because they're lazy you know it's kind of in, in some sense bad things happen to bad people yeah it's, it's the opposite of that thing which is also very negative in a way um, so it's like it's like you know in this case science isn't bad because there's a malicious or lazy actor it's because it's incentivized given the environment that's right, the, it's, that's it's, the story here. but i mean obviously yeah Obviously, it's more complicated because people still are choosing to use the techniques that they're using, even though, like, I understand why you might, because other people did. But they talk about the fact that there are commonly articles, like perspective articles published saying, guys, we need to do something about our statistical power. Like, we are underpowering all of our studies. We cannot be confident in any of our findings. And they say the earliest one in psychology was in 1962, and there's been many cents and the power hasn't changed what i what i like about this view though the the view put forth by this kind of article is that it says no matter how much we talk about it if the environment incentivizes it we can't change it yeah yeah, i totally agree with that and so it's 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 essentially saying that those perspective pieces criticizing certain practices are sort of like can't can't be useful because criticism can't like by itself, but someone, change individual behavior in a way that's sufficient to combat a toxic environment. But the weird thing about right? this so, system is that the incentives are set up by the actors in the system exactly, themselves. Exactly. The people that's, who are writing that's, those yeah, that's articles. That's my problem with it, exactly, Grace. Yeah. yeah. yeah sorry. The I, people who sorry, are writing those articles also do peer review and could say, I'm rejecting this paper because they need more subjects to make this claim or it needs to be a, a more well-formulated hypothesis or something like that. Somewhere at some point, people who maybe 
you know, would say that they agree with these problems aren't acting on them. Yeah, I agree. So the system is perpetuated by people. So at some where, yeah, there, there's something that, I think that's like the kind of, that probably is an important question to try to figure out when you're, when, when you talk about like, just criticism is not enough, writing a perspective piece that says we need to do blah, blah, blah. That's like very naive in a way. Um, but what you need to do is figure out like where how do you, how, how do you change it like where's the where's the actual like point at which yeah. some group of people or some individual or whatever can kind of actually change something right yeah it's in peer review and in evaluating people for jobs if you are going to say I'll hire the person who has the most papers then this is what's going to happen yeah but but, but like I mean, you, you could also say it's just like you could also say like all PhD students should just band together, figure out how they think science should work, and like change it right now. Because in some sense, if we did that, we would have to be able to. But of course, that's like impossible. Kind of, it's 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 like <laughs> uh, there's a question more of like no, no, I'm serious. Like there's a question. No, yeah, the, the point is like everybody has power at every point in some sense. But the, the question yeah, is yeah, more yeah. like which changes are actually most plausible? Plausible, basically. Like wh- where is there kind of a conf, a, like an overlap between? will or desire to change and sort of ability to or something so i mean you know a peer review yeah maybe maybe there um i mean it also seems like i mean i like i could give you an i mean you could you can create these just so stories for any dynamic but you could imagine that for example let's say there's like a subfield that decides they're going to have more rigorous standards Mm -hmm. people who have slightly sloppier standards will just start submitting to journals in a different subfield publish more Grant agencies won't know about the nuanced distinctions between those subfields, and different subfields could die relative to other subfields. I think another big thing that this whole framework ignores, and I think it's probably very related to this thing we're talking about, is like the fact that science, again, I'm I'm harping on this in a sort of predictable way, but I do think it's important, the fact that science isn't an isolated thing. And to me, it's clear, like in neuroscience, for example, why do we only study mice, right? It's because the pharmaceutical industry uses genetic mice. I mean, I'm not saying that's like, that's... And it's cheaper, yeah, well, I mean, it wouldn't have been cheaper if they had, if the pharmaceutical industry had just picked some other animal. I mean, they picked mice for a reason and so forth. I'm, I'm not saying it's like this is not just like a, a simple statement of good or bad. It's just that these facts are there and they're pretty strong forces. I think, um, for example, like what gets studied in medicine, like these obvious things that we all know about how Western diseases get, you know, a lot more funding than like the number of lives that we're saving by studying them or so, so, so on. Um, so this model that they have in here of like you inherit techniques from your advisor, I think that you know ignores the massive pressures on technology that come from industry, and it's a complex feedback thing where like you know people in machine learning. Yeah, but it, this isn't talking about subjects, right? So we we should differ, differentiate. This is not saying which topics uh, are people pursuing. It's saying what methods. are No, they but using I think to even in methods. Topics. That's what I'm saying. Even in methods, I think it has yeah, very strong and links yeah, with like industry. Those can be influenced. Well, we can talk more about this when we get to our last paper about how topics have changed in neuroscience. Cool. <laughs> um, but I think I think this was a cool one because it does yeah. it does in an oversimplifying way, but I think in a way that is illustrative and and you know provides some interpretation. Uh, get at something that uh, you know is is worth watching out for, and it's it's I think I think actually while. Uh, I realize that there's been a lot of go back and forth about this, uh, whether the agents are culpable or not. I do feel like the emphasis on this kind of is the right behavior for individuals to engage in, given the environment, makes clearer where the sort of uh, fixes need to be. It isn't the case that agents 
can individually totally solve this because by bucking the system as in an individual, they would just lose. Um, and so the like, if there is to be a fix for uh, too too much, let's say, let's call it sloppiness colloquially in science. If there's to be a fix for that, uh, it needs to be some sort of uh, system wide fix. Yeah, I, I'm, I, when I was talking about the like links with industry and stuff, I think that's I think a useful way of viewing. I'm getting, I got this from um, I, I just this I just came across this recently. Was reading Paul Feyerabend, who's this philosopher of science, who's like famously like people interpret him as famously super critical of science and stuff. But he always talked about his own work as like, um, and there's this term like, you know, like interventions and stuff in like humanities, which is kind of annoying to me in a way, but there's, the, 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 he talked about his own work often as like medicine kind of. Um, I think that's like useful, right? Because like it's so, com such a complex system, but like put it, like trying to say, I think given things right now, we need to think more this way. Viewing this paper as a piece of like medicine, I think it's quite good right now, given this like, yeah, know, exactly. this highly kind of individualist notion of like responsibility that's like so pervasive and yeah. So uh, we can talk about the peer review process more uh, in regards to this experiment that was done at NIPS. Um, so basically the normal like peer review. So this was done a couple of years ago for context. Yeah, yeah. This, this, was a, this is an annual conference and this was done a couple of years ago. But so yeah, the normal setup for peer review is just like you submit a paper and it's sent out to probably three scientists in the field and they read it and give their comments. And in the um, situation for conferences, usually there's some numeric score that goes along with it. And then uh, that score is used to determine who gets into the conference and not probably like the average of the three reviewers is the score of that paper and or some weighted average yeah i mean this conference is all your own schemes but. yeah yeah but the general idea is that three people provide their input and that's used to determine who gets into the conference and who doesn't so who gets to present their work there and who doesn't and basically what nips did was they wanted to know how reliable and robust their peer review process was. So basically in this year for 10% of the papers that were submitted, just a randomly chosen 10%, they sent them to two different sets of three people, to non-overlapping sets of three people. So basically this paper is going through the peer review process twice. And the question is, how often do you get the same result when you send the paper off to two different sets of three? And the result is not as frequently as you would like, I think, is what everyone felt about that. So basically, they said that 57% of papers that were accepted into the conference by one of the panel of three were rejected by the other panel. So that's, and in the, in the context of someone's career and PhD, that's pretty significant if you get accepted or not into this conference. And so to have it be that inconsistent is, I think, alarming to a lot of people. Um, do you find this surprising? No, right? I think um, maybe it's a little bit higher than you would think, although it is the case that when you go through this, it kind of does feel, especially if you submit similar projects to different conferences or different years, the difference in the feedback that you can get, I think, maybe isn't surprising then. Yep. You can see it in action that it feels a little random because there will be especially if it's and, and as most you know competitive things are there's an element of interest and what's fashionable and different people will find different research 
particularly interesting. And so insofar as that goes into it, it's very easy to get different results. Everyone could agree that what you did is scientifically sound. And some people might say, and it's amazing and everyone needs to hear about it. And other people might say, yeah, you should like, you know, yeah. post it somewhere. So people there's a lot know. of different ways this could come about. I mean, it, it could be that, yeah, it could, like that's one model that you just suggested. Maybe all of these papers are great, but they can only accept a number of papers. Right. And people have to come up with some justification in their own head for rejecting some and, and not rejecting others or whatever. So it's like very idiosyncratic and depends on the people doing mm -hmm. it. Or there's this other model that uh, was in that blog post that you sent, Grace, this guy, Moritz Hart, I guess, um, had this blog post about, about this NIPS experiment. Oh, sorry, yeah, it's a guest, it was a guest post by someone called Eric Price on a blog by someone called Moritz Hart. And he sort of, so yeah, this guest blogger suggested this model where, which we call it the messy middle model, which is kind of like, there are clear rejects, clear, a large number of clear rejects that everyone will agree on, some number of um, clear accepts, and then this middle, which is messy. And then there are these two sources of like noise, which is the variability um, in the quality of papers, and then, the, and then the variability in the assessment of a, of a given paper. So that, that's, just, that's just one other explanation for how this would arise. In, in that model, you can have the situation. Um, yeah, I think that that feels intuitive. Like the idea that there are certain papers that's just like, yeah, that's obviously great. And you kind of knew in advance that like this is going to get in and it's going to do fine. And then there's some that are like from some like crackpot ex-professor who like lives in a bunker. And it's like, OK, that's that's crazy. That's not going to get in. That's your, that's your like architect. You know, the rest. <laughs> the, the, those are the obvious rejects. <laughs> that's what I assume. That's that's where they're coming from. Um, but and then there's like, you know, all of us. Uh, toiling away in, in the middle, you know, hoping that we get sympathetic reviewers in the random selection. I mean, this it is it's hilarious to me that peer review is um, generally even for journals like high impact journals is three people yeah. deciding the fate of this research and of the career of the researcher because that's obviously too low to lead to significant results. So. We should know better. Yeah, I don't have. To, yeah, we should talk about peer review sometime. It'd be good to have like an in-depth. Might be fun to, because um, yeah. I'd be interested to talk about different proposed models and stuff. Like, in some ways, I feel like the current model of peer review. It's like I haven't. I don't see why we would think that would work at all. In, in some ways. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. So. I mean, I understand in the olden days it was the only thing feasible because it was like done via post. Yeah. Or yeah. Something. Reviewed by your um, peers, like. Kind of, it's, like, it's very elitist in a way. It has a slight, it probably has some origins. In. So that's one of the very few experiments that has actually been done on peer review. But obviously, more should be. Yeah, we should be more experiments. Great. Okay, so maybe we'll switch to the next article about trends in neuroscience research, which is maybe less depressing than this peer review study. I thought that was also pretty depressing. To be honest. <laughs> I don't know, it wasn't depressing. It was just... All right. Well, so what this paper did was that it looked at uh, journals that are categorized as neuroscience journals in the period 2006 to 2015, and it took the text from the title and abstracts of papers that are in these journals, and basically it was looking for words that were used a lot in the title and abstract, and particularly uh, words that co-occurred together. Um, 
and it used that to make mm. this word cloud, which is a figure in the paper. Um, and they show it this this word cloud at different time points, and basically it's showing you kind of words that appear a lot, and then their uh, closeness in this cloud show how often they appear together. And so basically, what you have is kind of two main sections: one yeah. uh, cluster of words on one side that are things like protein and receptor and things that are just more molecular neuroscience, and then on the other side you have things like. Um, task or participant or things that seem more like high level maybe fMRI studies or systems neuroscience is, is what it would be called and then interestingly there's um, kind of like a trickle of words that connects these two clouds that are mostly associated with medical or clinical research like patient or trial or things like that which I guess I never really thought of medical research as connecting systems with molecular neuroscience but it kind of makes sense because the medical stuff will have, you know, things like this gene, uh, you know, that's correlated with people having schizophrenia might lead to a deficit in certain tasks or something like that. So in a way, it makes sense that medical studies would be what's connecting the low level with the high level. But I just I never really thought about it. Uh, and then they also look at which words in a title or abstract will lead to or correlate with a high citation count. And they... Uh, categorize these these words to see how those things have changed over the years, these kind of high-impact words. So maybe it's a somewhat simple analysis that they're doing that can only show so much. No, I, I, I totally disagree. I think this is really interesting if, if you want to know, because like if you get if you go down into like the micro mechanics of how topics are changing in smaller fields, that, that, that's interesting in a separate way. But like it was like kind of revealing to me, like the the degree to which, because I'm blind to this, given what I work on, you know, neuroscience is dominated by certain kinds of like low level stuff, like molecular stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was surprised by how big that part of the word cloud was. It was like the majority. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, the analysis analysis showed was that. Over these years, the clouds, it looks like the literature about the cellular molecular stuff moves farther away from the higher level, more psychology system stuff. And so that was kind of an interesting large scale trend. It seems like things are diverging for better or worse. And also further away in what? Like the words aren't co-occurring anymore. Yeah. Like a a purely cellular paper isn't going to say anything about anything higher than that. And also, I mean, it is interesting, like we've been talking about kind of these meta science papers that are looking at literature, like, you know, looking, doing automated analysis of literature to understand things, to have it done on the field you're in and see how it lines up with your intuitions is, is interesting because it, it didn't necessarily line up with my intuitions about what I thought were the biggest trends in neuroscience uh, over this time period. Neuroscience is quite a large field. and. Right. It's not clear how any person in it who's not like an organizer of a very large kind of cross-disciplinary conference, like if, if so Society for Neuroscience is like the big annual conference, right? And if you were an organizer of that, you might have a sense of what the entire field looks like. Yeah. But as an individual studying specific things and sort of maybe recognizing that things in very other parts, very distant parts of neuroscience aren't actually relevant to the questions you're pursuing or the methods you would use, like you just... You, you wouldn't follow large portions of the neuroscience literature because it's like not even the same neuroscience. 
Yeah, I think that. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and that's why I was saying. I in some sense, I just I find it actually that really interesting because um, I very rarely think about the large scale structure of neuroscience, and it's just interesting because there's all this talk of like neuroscience in popular media and stuff, and like sure, neuro yeah. this and neuro that, neuro whatever ethics and neuroeconomics and all this stuff, and it just gives this impression of like this kind of coherent thing called neuroscience, but like yeah. Most neuroscientists just do some very particular thing. And it's very unrelated yeah. to what other neuroscientists do. Yeah, because they talk about some of the, the high-impact terms, these terms that are correlated with high citations, and some that have grown over the years are related to imaging, like default mode network, uh, which is like what areas are active when you put someone in an fMRI and don't have them do anything. Um, and functional connectivity, which is like what areas are active together. And that kind of thing. But then another other terms that were growing were like microglia, which is like very low scale, like these supportive cells in the brain or micro RNA, which is like about protein production and stuff. So it's just like there, there are things that are growing, but are they growing in any related way? Doesn't seem like it. It also seemed like there was a clear trend, though, of. Well, so one term that was growing a lot was autism. And then also a lot of the molecular stuff is uh, relevant to Alzheimer's research. So those seemed like pretty notable trends uh, in what's becoming popular or what's becoming more cited. And that, I mean, almost certainly has to do with external influences. There are more old people in the rich countries now. Yeah, they said that some of the... So they have like kind of tags that go along with the papers for like the category that they're in. And so the psychiatry stuff has decreased, but psychology has become more popular. So it's kind of like a de-emphasis, I guess, on the, the medical side and more of an emphasis on cognitive and psychology for some of the research. But then also uh, papers that would be potentially part of like zoology were decreasing and immunology and geriatrics were increasing. So it's like... We're studying older people and we're not looking at zoology. It's like there are some older colleges where neuroscience is somehow related to like the zoology and anatomy department. Like these are older classifications for how things were studied. Interesting. It was also funny because the intro to this paper lists like a few big trends in neuroscience. Like there's the U.S. Brain Initiative that's funding new methodologies and people are studying the connectome and uh, the Nobel Prize was given for hippocampal grid cells and place cells for spatial navigation, but the, like none of those terms turned up in the analysis. It was like even the authors of this paper were probably surprised by what was what were the trends that were actually happening because I don't think they line up with what a lot of people think of as the hot growing areas. But maybe it's just there's a delay. Like if this analysis was done over 2016 to 2020. Maybe we might start seeing the, yeah. the trends yeah. that you think are. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting how I guess this is also have been has been shown other times. They have this statement that the correlation of publication share in neuroscience with the per capita health expenditure for the most productive countries. Um, yeah, but they said so. They were, yeah, they were looking about across countries, but they said if they took out the U.S. and China, that didn't really hold. So it was like being driven oh, yeah. by. Actually, no, I think I'm now realizing I don't understand what that statement means. If you spend a lot of money on health, then you publish a lot of neuroscience papers, or probably science papers generally, but they're looking at neuroscience. But yeah, it seems to be driven a lot by the U.S., because the U.S. spends a crazy amount on 
health related stuff and also does science. So I don't know if that's like as causal. But then China, that's funny. I think it's, they're, they are on the lower end of, of either of those. I mean, they've been growing and th- this was showing that they went from like 2% of publications to 11% of publications in this time period. Okay, any other thoughts on the science of science? I mean, I think we, we sort of at least gotten into some interesting uh, issues about like different roles that different scientists can play and how credit would be assigned and the extent to which those teams and individuals are participating in good or bad science or science that is assessed to be good or bad, either correctly or incorrectly. Um, I mean, clearly we haven't even really like scratched the surface with the sort of the kinds of meta science that are, are currently conducted and like the, the range of topics that are, are open to that. I think that it's an interesting topic and, and I think in some sense, the target audience of meta science is almost like scientists who are not meta scientists. Like, I mean, that would be like the hope. But so I, I wonder how widespread meta science is these days. And like, like, is it is, it, is this is this the kind of thing like there's, there's a large field for like sociology of science as well. That's not using the sort of methods that mostly we're talking about when we're talking about meta science mostly when we're talking about meta science here in the, in the context of this discussion we're talking about like sort of like practicing scientists doing scientific style analyses of so, like data about scientific communities let's say um and that feels very different uh, to like other disciplines that try to crit- critique science from the outside. This is like more insider-ish. Yeah. And so it doesn't feel like it's so much of its own field as, as it's like a hobby. I mean, this I, of, of scientists to do like on the side. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't mean that it's amateurish, right? I mean, but it, it's, it's almost like still in domain for scientists. It's like. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of this actually does overlap with like the, this kind of quantitative side of, of sociology, though. I, I mean, I think a lot of these people are from, like, for example, in the natural selection paper, one of the guys is, he's, a, I think, an anthropologist or something, um, one of the authors of that. So I think it, it does intersect with that. And I, I, it's inter- it is interesting. I think it is, I have the impression that there's more and more of this thing of where scientists are engaging in this activity, like you say. Um, and it's kind of curious. It's like this very self-conscious thing. It, it, to me, it's sort of, it's, it hints at some sort of awareness of problems in science and scientists kind of like mobilizing I mean, it, it, away more than hints. I mean, this just is like, I mean, I think most scientists are fairly self-aware about this. I think people who are more from the sort of STS background. Science and technology uh, studies. Yeah. Um, in a way, I, I imagine a lot of this must look quite naive in some sense yeah, like not naive it's different in, yeah it's different I, I, like, I think I, yeah, I, I it's agree na- it's naive because no, they ignore I, I, yeah, they I, ignore this whole like other so I, which is kind of ridiculous if you go and it's like if I were to go and st- if I were to go and start studying any part of neuroscience and I just decided to ignore all of the work that had been done on that same area before like I would be considered I'm not silly. I'm not sure it's the same area that's kind of what I'm saying so like if you if you take ex- like just as a super concrete example like take the, the sort of NIPS experiment Right, like that's scientists who organize a, a, a meeting doing a study on the meeting that they organize. And yeah. like it doesn't, I mean, the problem is one that's identified by people who organize a meeting, right? And it's 
one that it's not clear to me that there would be like a rich literature on from people outside of science. Right. It, sure. it, it feels it feels like very insiderish in a way that I, I think is potentially good because it might diagnose like it might diagnose the right problems for study and give solutions in both a language and with a level of rigor that would be expected by the people who it would be trying to convince of something. Right. If, yeah, you, I mean, if you use only non quantitative analyses, you, you could use both. You could. Right? Yeah. If you worked with those people. In a, in, and both parties were being open-minded, then presumably you would end up using both in some way, right? Is, 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 I feel, right? I mean, that, that's my, 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 my bias is to kind of feel like in some sense those people are like too critical for scientists to want to engage with. But you're saying they're like, they're like sort of too different and maybe critical to be like useful to engage with even. Um, yeah, that, I think that, that summarizes our, our potential description, which is not to say that they, they aren't doing things that are potentially interesting, but it's not like the stuff that you can directly incorporate into a sort of empirical study of of what's going on in science. Yeah, it's probably just too early. But yeah, yeah, no, probably. And I, I'm not trying to be critical of this. I just think it's I think it's interesting because I think it's like the emergence, like you say, it is the emergence. Not it's not hinting in the sense that it just it, they are explicitly doing this thing of being like, oh, we're self conscious about how science is going. It seems to be going. In various bad directions. Here are our thoughts. Here are here's our here's our attempt to study it, and here are some ideas about what we should do better. Right, um, and that's great. And from my reading of these other things, I really feel like they've got loads of good ideas that that they would help, that could help um, in terms of grounding these studies like better. Um, yeah, probably 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 in the like next five years there's gonna be like or in the next ten years or something there'll be this thing where people start, I don't know, interacting with more of the outsiders or something. Till next time. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast? Give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.